Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We are making our way slowly through Romans 8, and I, uh, I know we kind of joke about that, but I don't want us to make any apologies for that. This is, this is deep and rich, incredible truth for us all, not only to know, but to live on. I've entitled this sermon, and this, this will end up being a little bit of a series, The Security of God's Golden Chain of Salvation. There are some linkages happening in Romans 8, 29, and 30 with a series of theological truths that are all linked together that theologians have historically called the golden chain of salvation. Some call it the ordo salutis, the divine order in salvation. I don't think the order is what's in, in the mind here, in the mind of the Apostle Paul, as much as the incredible security that's ours because of our salvation in Christ. Now, this is a response, or an explanation, rather, verses 29 and 30, of what we've already looked at in verse 28. So let's just read that to refresh our minds of it. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called According to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. It is so easy to get distracted from doing what we're supposed to do or what we need to do in the middle of a task. But these distractions aren't always bad. Let me give you an example. Have you ever cleaned out a drawer that you've been stuffing stuff in for a long time or maybe a closet that you've been stuffing stuff in for a long time or even had the opportunity to move and you looked into areas of your house that you hadn't seen in a long time? And you find something and it stops your progress. You stop unpacking the drawer or cleaning out the closet or, or even filling the box if you're moving. You stop because this object that you've just picked up is something you want to reminisce about, rejoice over, remember, something you've found, something you've discovered, something that alerts your attention and gets you off the task of going ahead and finishing the drawer or the closet or filling the box. Such is the case in the passage before us. We're on a march. Our task from the Apostle Paul is to understand chapter 8 in its context, which is to provide security to the believer by the work of the Spirit of God. And yet, as we're marching toward that end to understand it, it seems like every verse we almost stop with a wonderful distraction. Not a bad distraction, but a wonderful distraction that gets our mind kind of honed in to what Paul is saying and makes us want to pull the car over and look at the view. Verses 29 and 30 can be very distracting. And what I mean by that is they, these verses contain some pretty serious, high-altitude theological truths. The first two that it mentions are foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of God, and predestination. So we need to understand what these mean, both in, in the argument as a whole, looking at what we're trying to do in understanding Paul's argument, and also be able to pull over and just look at this subject. 
What I want to try to do today is keep the big picture and the big argument in mind and also stop to enjoy the view regarding God's foreknowledge. Now, verses 29 and 30 are really a long sentence in the Greek. Um, It's not intended by Paul to be very complicated, although we can complicate it very quickly if we stop and get too distracted. Paul just lists these things. He just talks about them as he's going. He doesn't stop with any footnotes. He doesn't stop with any explanation. He doesn't stop with an appendices and say, look at the appendix and see what I'm saying more about this at the end of the book of Romans. He just talks about the, these, these parts of our salvation, predestination, foreknowledge, calling. And they're elements that are supposed to give us encouragement. And yet... They are so important that if we don't stop and ask what they really mean, they won't give us the encouragement that Paul intends. God is on our side. He can be trusted. That's why he's telling us all he's done in salvation in verses 29 and 30. He can be trusted because of what he's done through Christ, because of what the Spirit continues to do in us because of Christ. And this sentence shows that the work extends from eternity past to eternity future. That's how much God is involved with our salvation. Now, the passage is not about unknotting every theological curiosity that you and I have regarding the sovereignty of God and salvation. Don't you wish this one passage did that? If we could read this and understand God's sovereignty, God's foreknowledge, predestination in one simple reading and we would be done with it. Paul actually gives us a lot of credit. He believes that he can take us, he believes that we can take him, rather, at face value and just explain what God is doing from eternity past to eternity future in our salvation. Now, before we dive into verses 29 and 30, let's look at the big picture. What What is Paul doing here? Why stop and talk about eternity past and eternity future in salvation? Why do that? Remember back in verses 17 and 18, look back up there for a moment. If we've been adopted, if children, verse 17, were heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So there's a connection between our suffering and looking toward heaven, looking toward our ultimate glorification, which is exactly what verse 18 says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the context here is our suffering. That's why Romans 8, 28 comes to bear. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He's not taking this this idea of our suffering and our difficulty and our, our, our circumstances that we dislike in this life and just throwing them out. He's saying, no, no, those actually are designed by God to work together for our good and they're a part of his eternal plan for us. So chapter eight and its truths are provided to give us comfort, not theological confusion, not theological debate. Now, I, I say that because get uh, two people who, uh, one, one is persuaded by an Armenian hermeneutic and theological conviction, and one who's persuaded by a Calvinistic hermeneutic or conviction. Get them in this verse, and they can miss the whole point. Miss the whole point. We're going to talk about foreknowledge in a minute and understand what it means, but... 
the whole purpose is to give us in comfort that the one who has began that work in us will, will perfect it, will complete it. It's all about that last phrase, to be glorified. He is going to bring us into his heavenly kingdom and can be trusted because his, his salvation work in us goes all the way back to eternity past. Yes, from this point in chapter 8, all the way through chapter 11, we're going to wrestle with God's sovereignty in salvation. But even more so, we should discover God's comfort because of our salvation in difficult circumstances. Last study, we looked at God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And I did that on purpose to show you that the Bible clearly and in a balanced way says man is ultimately responsible. God is absolutely sovereign. You're never going to work that out and get that resolved to a satisfying degree in your mind. That's the balance of it. Now, I wanted to tell you that because basically from here through chapter 11, it's not very balanced. There are other passages that, that balance this, this, uh, this theological perspective out, but this is heavily accented on the sovereignty of God. The Bible teaches unequivocally that God is totally sovereign over our lives, but it also teaches that we are absolutely responsible to God for our decisions. So with that, I want to dive into this linkage, and we're only going to get to number one today. It's, it's five links in God's golden chain of salvation. Five links in God's golden chain of salvation. And this morning, we're only going to look at number one his foreknowledge. The first link is we're foreknown. We're foreknown. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew. At the heart of the debate over God's sovereignty and salvation are these words foreknowledge or foreknew. Followed quickly by predestined or Predestination, that's the next phrase he uses. <coughs> Let's look at them separately, and we're going to just look at foreknowledge today because I want to tell you, I, I, uh, I grew up in, a, in a, a context that I did not understand was Arminian. Um, it was beloved brothers, a great pastor who, who wanted so much to protect God's integrity that he so disdained the idea that God was sovereign in salvation. I understand his heart. I understand his motive. The problem is you have to twist a lot of scripture to say that man is ultimately responsible for salvation and God is not. And it starts with this first word here in foreknowledge, foreknew. Those whom he, that is God, foreknew. Now, to understand this, I want to back up and give you some options and look at the theological uh, propositions that two camps have come to in understanding foreknowledge. As I said already, there's the Arminian camp, which puts salvation's accent on man's decision, and the Calvinistic camp, which puts God's accent uh, in salvation on God. Two broad general views that are taken about what foreknowledge means. And I remember when I was growing up, studying foreknowledge in a context that was very Arminian, thinking exactly what I'm about to explain to you was true. First, let's look at this Arminian view. Um, let's talk about that for a moment. Arminian commentators and Arminian uh, um, uh, theologians and people who hold to Arminianism, remember Arminius was a man who, who began to 
combat Calvin in uh, a generation after Calvin and what Calvin said about God's sovereignty and salvation. He uh, uh, came up with five points, and then the five points of Calvinism were actually a response to what his theological propositions were. But Arminian commentators and those who hold this theological position maintain that Paul is saying, get this, that God predestined to salvation those whom he foreknew would respond to his offer of grace. Did you hear that? He looked and knew who would respond, and that's who he predestined. That is, those who he saw would of their own free will, repent of their sins and believe the gospel. I'll never forget the the phraseology that I learned growing up. God looked down through the corridors of time and he saw who would choose him and he chose them. That's how it was framed to me. Put simply, Arminians understand this word foreknew to mean that God knew beforehand which sinners would believe. So the accent again is on the sinner who will believe. And on the basis of that knowledge, knowing who would choose him, he then predestined those who chose him unto salvation. This is known not as foreknowledge. This is actually foresight. For the Arminian, foreknowledge is basically God's foresight. He sees what would happen outside of his control and responds to it. That's the idea. Now, the other category, commentators... (coughs) are theologians called Calvinists. And we looked a little bit at this last week. A Calvinist is, a, is someone who I, I think is trying to be as biblical as possible. Neither the Arminians would say they follow Arminius, nor the Calvins would, Calvinists would say they follow Calvin. They just say these theologians framed up the argument that they can, they can um, articulate. This theological interpretation believes that the word is not foresight, just seeing what was going to happen, but rather that God actually sets his heart upon certain people, certain individuals, before time, before they're born. In other words, that God, next word, predestined them. Now look at verse 29 for a second. Verse 29 does not say that God knew something about a particular individual, something they would do, a decision they would make, Rather, the verse clearly states that God knew the individuals themselves. Those whom he knew, he predestined to be made like Christ. Another way of thinking about it in the context is to understand the word foreknew to be synonymous with foreordained or even foreloved, loved beforehand, ordained beforehand. Those who were marked As objects of God's love, he marked out for salvation. Now here's how we can understand the difference between these two two views, if I can put it very simply. Did God look down through the corridors of time and notice that there are certain people who would believe and then, based on that, that, that sight that he had of them believing, predestined them to be saved on the basis of this foreseen faith? That's the Arminian view. Or did God choose certain individuals and because of his love for them, predestined them to be called and given the faith in Christ that only he can rot? 
Here's the central issue. Is an individual's faith the cause or the result of God's predestination? You understand that? Is someone's faith the cause of God predestined? In other words, God sees you're gonna believe, so then he predestines you. Or is it the result that God predestines and therefore you believe? It really comes down to that. Well, in order to understand this, let's look first at the language itself. Look at the fact that Paul says, whom he foreknew. Does it say he foreknew what they did, what they decided, what they would believe? Whom he knew them. Whom is the object of the verb without any qualifying explanation? Whom he foreknew. Now, Paul could have said, he had plenty of language to be able to say something like, God foreknew the choice, God foreknew the decision, God foreknew the, the, um, uh, the actions that this person would do. That's not what Paul said. Plenty of Greek language available to him if he wanted to be able to, to say that, but that's not what he said. That's kind of a logical understanding, but let's look at it specifically. This word foreknowledge, prognosco, pro, before, gnosko, knowledge, no, to know something beforehand. It also means to choose or to appoint beforehand. To select in advance. This is just what the Greek dictionary says. To select something in advance. Now let's just take a quick survey and see if this, is, this bears the truth that God would, um, would have us understand. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all. All my good pleasure. So in Isaiah 46, 10, the the prophet tells us that God, quoting God, nothing he wants to happen will not happen. That's a pretty profound statement. He will accomplish all, not some, not parts, all his good pleasure. Now here's a question that we have to wrestle with. This is a question that, that you must come to grips with. When you have this idea of foreknowledge, does that mean that you see what was going to happen as God and then you respond to that, or does it mean you forelove or foreordain? The same exact word is used in Acts chapter 2. Listen to this. <coughs> Acts 2.22, rather. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, listen, this man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and, here's our word, foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So if we apply that idea of foresight to foreknowledge, what does that mean here? Does that mean that God looked down the corridors of time and saw that Jesus would die and then decided to organize the plan of salvation around that? It's the same idea. Either he foreordained it or he had foresight and responds to it. I think it's fine. It's interesting, by the way, in verse 23 that you see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man next to each other. The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God 
you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Man's responsibility, God's absolute sovereignty, back to back in the same verse. So for those uh, Armenian friends who want to say that for knowledge, is not God predetermining, predestining, it's him responding to what would happen, then we have to ask, if that's true, we have to bring the exact same word, the exact same meaning into Acts 2 and say then the cross was just God's response to what would happen with Jesus being crucified and he organized the plan of salvation after he saw that Jesus would die. Does that sound like what the book of Revelation says, that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world? In other words, in the mind of God, this plan was totally planned out. Look at the text. You delivered over by the predetermined plan of God and foreknowledge of God. Those are synonyms. Predetermined. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, the very beginning of his epistle, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are Chosen, how are they chosen? According to the foreknowledge of God. I don't know how that can be foresight. Chosen, and this choosing is according to God's foreknowledge, his forelove, his foreordination. Now, in order to really understand this, this Let's, let's sneak ahead. Let's turn the page and look at what God is going to tell us in chapter 9. This is some of the deepest water in Scripture. This is some of the most turbulent theological truths anyone could even swallow. But look at chapter 9, verse 9. We're going to get there. We have a full explanation there. But what did God know beforehand, before a person's life? For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Remember the story. Abraham is, is old. Sarah is old. He's promised a child. So Sarah is promised she'll have a son. Not only this, but there was Rebekah also, and when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. So the second generation, Isaac and Rebekah, they have twins. Verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. Paul goes to extra lengths to say this is before they had lived one second of their life outside the womb, before they had made one decision, before they had had one action, before that, when they were still in the womb, so that God's purpose, according to his, what's the word? Choice would stand not because of works, which they would do after they were born, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Now at this point, and we're going to get there in a full explanation in a few weeks, but at this point, you kind of stop and you say, that's not fair. God chose one of one of the twins over the other. He actually chose the twin born second over the other. Before they had ever done anything good or bad, he makes the point. Before they had lived a life and made a decision, he chose one. And we're tempted to say, hang on, that's not just. That's not right. 
That's not fair, right? Next verse. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For, he says to Moses, I, quoting Exodus 33, I will have compassion I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills, decides, believes, or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And he gives an example for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. If I can give you a little, uh, little head start into this passage, um, it's hard truth. And the hard truth is God is absolutely sovereign before the world ever began. Man is still absolutely responsible after he's born. And when you start to say, hang on, that's not fair. There must be some injustice with God. You know what he says? Can't say anything. In the next passage, you'll say, how can the clay look up at the potter and say, what have you done? Look at Romans eleven two for a moment. We'll come back to all of this, trust me. Romans 11, verse 2. <coughs> God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? In other words, God is going to f fulfill his promises within and to Israel. He's not going to back away from that. And he's going to fulfill those promises because he foreloved, foreordained, foreknew Israel when he chose them back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. In other words, no matter what's going on with the decisions in Israel, they're being cursed, they're rejecting the Messiah. It's not based on their decisions. It's based on his foreknowledge. You say, why, why labor that point? Why, why belabor that point? Go back to the overarching argument Paul's making. I just, I, one of the fears I have in studying this, and next time we're going to look at predestination and what that means and what it doesn't mean, is you could easily fall off the, 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 the trail on one side or the other and be frustrated or be a hyper-Calvinist or you could uh, say, I don't care, or you could say, this is all I care about, or you could miss the whole point. We started out by saying that it's easy to get distracted when you're, when you're looking through a drawer or a closet and you find something that catches your attention. This has caught our attention, but don't let it destroy the argument. Don't let it distract you from what Paul is doing. And... If, if you understand foreknowledge, it will be a comfort. If you understand it as foresight, it does just the opposite. Let me explain what I mean. 
Paul is saying you can be comforted. If you look back at the text, because the one who he foreknew, you go all the way down to the end of verse 30, he will glorify. Eternity past to eternity future, he will glorify. Ultimately, that's the exact phraseology he uses back in 17 and 18 to say that's our ultimate comfort. It's going to be okay someday. Don't stress, don't worry. Even if it looks like everything is lost and you're losing in this life, it's okay. You're gonna be glorified. God will take care of you in the end. Does it make any sense that his argument would be God will take care of you in the end but you took care of yourself in the beginning. How did you take care of yourself? Because you, remember the formulation. You decide that you want to obey God, that you love God, that you want to be a Christian, that you want to have faith. God looks ahead in time, sees that, and comes back to where we are now uh, in, in eternity past and says, I will choose the one who chose me. Who's sovereign in salvation in that? Man is. But the whole point is God's sovereignty from the past to the future is what gives us comfort. He can be trusted. Do you see that? It doesn't make sense that it's just foresight. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, because I think it as well. You're over in Romans 9. You're like, well, I want to believe that. I think that might be true, but that sure sounds not very fair. You have to go back to our starting point. You're right. It's not fair that God would choose anyone for salvation. It's not right. If we got what we, what we deserved, if we really got what was fair, I don't think anybody would like that. The comfort is the one who will glorify you is the one who chose you from the beginning, which is when we get to our next word, predestined. Now, I told you that this seems a little bit uh, uh, balanced and on one side of the teeter-totter, and you think, well, this is... You know, have we become hyper-Calvinist at Mission Road and are we Calvin-Nazis? No, not at all. There are other passages that will talk about man's responsibility and the choices that he makes. Just for a moment, turn over to Revelation chapter 20. Don't ever forget this. We'll come back to this over and over Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from those whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. According to predestination, according to foreknowledge. Is that what it says? No. According to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Look down at chapter 21, verse 20, verse 8, rather. For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. 
Every time in the Gospels, in the Epistles, in the Apocalypse, that someone is, is described as going to hell, it's never because they weren't chosen, they weren't predestined. It's always because of their responsibility. You say, how does that work out? I don't know. And if you can't hold some tension in these passages, you're going to be frustrated the rest of your life in your quiet times, in your Bible study. How does that work out? I, I, I don't know. Are you okay with believing things that you don't really understand? Augustine said, I believe, therefore I understand. I don't understand in order to believe. Um, let me just throw one at you. How about the Trinity? <coughs> Say the Trinity? Well, yeah, the Father's God and the Son's God and the Spirit's God. Okay. Is it one God or three? Well, it's one. Well, then why are there three? Because it's, you don't become a modalist and say there's three gods and one. You can get trapped really quickly, but yet you receive and accept that, don't, don't you? I, I trust, I hope. If these parts of salvation are intended to help us through suffering because of God's love for us and work in us, then how can foreknowledge be encouraging if it's just the recognition of what we're going to decide? It doesn't provide comfort or encouragement at all. So how do we respond to that? Foreknown means love beforehand. If you're a believer, you look at that and you just scratch your head and you say, wow, how in the world can that be true? Why in the world would that be true? I know me. I wouldn't have chosen me. Yet God did. If you're an unbeliever, though, the admonition of Scripture is never, see if you're predestined or if you've been foreknown. That's never the admonition. The admonition is to believe. How do you know you're predestined? How do you know you're foreknown? Because you believe. It's exactly what the opening pages of John tells us. It's kind of funny because we, we spoke about this last time. Um, people don't read far enough. John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. See, it's all man's belief, right? It's our faith. Keep reading. Who were born... Not of blood, nor the what? Will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. <coughs> so it's belief, and it's God's will, and we ought to be okay with having that intention. If you are struggling with this, welcome to the deep end of the pool. I don't know any theologian who has not struggled with this at some deep level for some amount of time. <coughs> don't be frustrated just because you don't understand it all. It's okay to grasp and, and believe things that you're still sorting out. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. That's okay. The response to those who are Yet in the kingdom is not see if you're foreknown or if you're predestined. See if you know the, the secret Christian handshake. 
The admonition is believe. Believe. Don't ever, ever, ever think that you're going to figure out the infinite mysteries of God with the feeble brain God put between your two ears. And yet, don't ever think that he hasn't revealed enough to us that wouldn't provide us encouragement and comfort and equipping and worship. I want to ask if you don't know Christ today, not to be distracted by this, but to know that to be glorified means to be foreknown, and to be foreknown means you believe. Will you believe the truth that God sent his son to die for your sin and raised him from the dead after that crucifixion? This is just the beginning. We're gonna come back and catch a lot of this when we go into predestination. They're all linked together, but we need to start with just this introduction to foreknowledge, knowing that foreknowledge is not foresight. Would you pray with me? (coughs) Father, we're grateful for your work defined by your word. So humbling, so deeply humbling. Give us the comfort that this passage is designed to provide. To not make us theologically confused, but to make us comforted in our affliction and our suffering and our difficulties and our less than desirable circumstances. I want to pray for our body. Lord, give us confidence to hold truth sometimes when it appears that it doesn't gel with another truth, but to hold those as clearly taught by your word and one day will be sorted out with a glorified mind Still, cause us to be evangelists, to be offerers of the gospel, not seeing if people are foreknown or predestined, but calling people to see and understand and repent and believe. Make this comforting passage motivating to us to be more faithful because of Christ. Amen.